Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I am your host, Daniel, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and mentorship. So check it out at tkex.org. I'm joined today by pain science advocate. He is Trevor Barker. He has been well known amongst the pain revolution crew. He's an advocate with some great content, and I'm keen to dive into his own personal experience. The more that we learn about the lived experience of those experiencing pain, the more that we can appreciate the, the subtleties and the, the impact that pain can have on a, on a human. So Trevor, thank you so much for making the time for us today. Well, thank you, Daniel. It's just lovely to um, spend some time sharing my story and um, thinking about how pain science helps us navigate um, having a life and managing pain. Awesome, Trevor. So for those who don't know you, what is your story? Well, um, that's a really good question. And, and for me, I think it's really important that that when we talk about pain, we get to understand a person's journey and their story, what lies behind what's going on for them. And for me, I was born into a, a reasonably middle-class family in, in Melbourne, in Ivanhoe. And I grew, grew up really with a, couple, with a brother and a sister in a family situation. And I had my first real experience with pain, probably just, you know, growing up, being young and getting hurt by neighbours, getting abused and uh, not having anyone one to share that story with. I held a lot of the pain inside. And then I moved on. A lot of stuff was going on inside me that I had no space to share it with anybody else. And uh, when I was about 15, I started an electrical apprenticeship. So I started to get into building, being, being involved in the construction industry. And I injured my back probably for the first time when I was 17 or 18, I was carrying a ladder, an extension ladder that was fully extended. And uh, as I was walking it from one location to another, it hit a, hit a girder up, up, up high. And I bent it down to get under the girder and in the process of standing it back up, it required all of my strength and particularly relied on my back to stand it up. up. And three days later, I was in a world of pain. My initial response to that was to go off to the doctor and again, not tell anyone. So this was you know, an interesting continuation of that background. I didn't tell my work that I'd injured my, myself at work. So I went to, went to the doctor got some anti-inflammatories, got some painkillers, and then did a little bit of physio and got back to work as quickly as I could. So I was back to work within two weeks. And that was my first exposure to a lower back injury. Uh, and if we fast forward, in my early 20s, got married, had our first daughter when I was 27, and then I lost my job i've been doing physical work electrical work and i had in my mind that i just couldn't do this forever because lurking in the background was this back injury and, and being in a bit of pain and i lost my job and i retrained 
and it took about three and a half years to get into new employment. Uh, so it was a period of time where I was out of work. And during that time, I was doing a little bit of part-time casual work and working as an attendant carer and doing a lot of physical work with other people. And, and this is where I injured my back and I had a client who was at the, we were taking to the Melbourne Zoo, it was the day the orangutan got out. And in the middle of the panic and the mayhem of the orangutan running around the Melbourne Zoo, everyone got herded into safe places and we were herded into the back of the, the butterfly enclosure. And my client was about 16 stone. He was deaf, acquired brain injury and in a wheelchair. So it was quite an effort to get him into the enclosure. And then and during that time, he needed to go to the toilet and we didn't notice anything, but when we got out, I certainly noticed um, that he needed to be fixed up. So off we went to the disabled toilets and I was, it's, it took about 45 minutes to clean him up and get him changed uh, on my own, no help out in the community. And at that stage, he'd become quite, you know, I've had enough of this. So we, we decided to go back to uh, the hospital where he was living and off we went and the taxi broke down on the way back to where he was living. So that required me to transfer him out of the taxi into his wheelchair. And it was in Northcote, which for anyone that knows Melbourne, Northcote's an inner uh, northern suburb with bluestone, cobblestone streets um, and gutters. And so the wheelchair was quite rickety on the wedge between the taxi and the, and the gutter. And my client basically gave up on the transfer halfway out of the car and, and started to fall and forward. So I grabbed him by the shoulders and yanked him back onto the chair, but I was leaning forward, you know, and, and that I felt this tearing, ripping sensation in my back. And that, that was quite a serious injury. Um, I was off work for six months. I was getting a lot of physiotherapy, taking medication. And I went back to work. It was in the day where, where people were being encouraged to go back to work as soon as possible after an injury. Uh, I hadn't quite recovered. And the very next day of going back to work, a client had a fall and I picked him up. And in that process, you know, really injured my back badly. And I was back into a lot, lot of pain. And at that stage, my go-to uh, way of managing pain was to rest and to put hot water bottles on my back, try to avoid movement, try to avoid flare-ups and become quite protective of, of my whole self. And I, I just became, started slowly get into a space where what I was trying to do was to understand my injuries, understand what was wrong with my body and find a pill to fix it. And the sort of treatment that I was getting was massage therapy, physiotherapy, uh, manipulation, trying to keep my back a little bit supple. And I started to notice that instead of the pain that was in my lower back in L3, L4, it was starting to sort of become spread out over my back and over time, over about, I reckon, five years, 
it got to a point where pain wasn't just in my lower back, it was all over my body. And for me, that was about the fact that I've been protecting myself and not moving and that generalised sense of pain instead of just being specific. So by this time, I'd really locked myself into persistent or chronic pain. And I was really on a maintenance program with the health professionals that I was seeing, just getting treatment in order to stay at work, to keep a little bit mobile and to try to manage pain. And around that time, I guess I was probably late 30s, early 40s. I'd been in pain for quite some time and I'd moved to a job as a social welfare officer. So I was doing a lot of counselling and, and support for people. And my the stress that I was experiencing at home was starting to get wind up and get bigger and bigger. And so there was quite a bit of stress in my life. And my relationship at home with my wife was starting to break down. And, and I was trying to get help for that. And to tell a long story short, at the end of that breakdown of that relationship, stress was off the scale. It was really, really bad. And, and my pain was really, really bad. And I'd gone from just to a point where I'd, I was resting as much as I possibly could. I'd seen lots of different clinicians, uh, lots of different modalities, given them their very best effort to fix me. And I was at a crossroads at the breakdown of my relationship, just thinking to myself, wow, you've given all of this a go. You're on opioid-based medication, you're on nerve pain medication instead of just L3, L4. I was now getting nerve pain in my legs. I was, neck was really bad. I used to have a standing joke with my massage therapist that sort of captures what my thought process. And when she'd ask me, how are you today? My response, my standard response is, my nose is okay today. And that really highlights the fact that pain by that time was all over my body and none of the medication was touching it. I was getting into a stage where sleep was becoming a real problem. I was lethargic and tired. I was looking to get a disability pension to help manage financially because by this time I'd also lost my job. So I'd gone from full-time employment down to part-time employment to almost no employment. And then I lost my full-time job. And at this stage, um, things were really bad. I, I had a, a sleep study. Um, the sleep study showed that I had uh, 23 minutes of REM sleep overnight with 96 spontaneous wakings. And sure, it was a bad night, but it was a, a night that I'd probably have two or three times a week and the rest of it was pretty bad. So even by this stage, the opioid medication wasn't helping me to sleep very well either. And you know, I was completely stressed. So Daniel, I got to a point where I started to think to myself, Trevor, you've ramped up medication, you've ramped up every intervention that every health professional has offered you, and where has that left you? 
it's left me in more pain. It's left me without a job. I'd lost a lot of my social connections through work and extended networks because of the fact that I was now quite isolated. I'd lost my marriage. And I started to develop a plan B in order to try to manage life. And the plan B tells you a lot about my mindset at the time. Plan B was to sell everything up and go into a retirement village with a nursing home attached. Because I couldn't see myself having a life living on my own with low levels of pain. The only thing I could see was, well, you're going to end up in a nursing home. You might as well get start the process of trying to manage life in a confined small space. And um, there, there you have it. So that was a you know pretty significant point where I started to formulate this, this plan in my mind. And it was at around that time that I met a friend who, who I hadn't known, known for a while, but I knew that he had far worse injuries than me. And he'd been off to a pain management program, the Albury Wodonga Pain Management Program, and had a change in his situation. And I asked him about the program, he told me a little bit about it. And I thought to myself, well, mate, you've given the medical world every opportunity to fix you. It's left you in a really bad space. Why don't you try something different? And I went along to the program and to get into the program, you, you get your doctor or you can write yourself a referral and you then wait. I waited about four months. Uh, they got back to me, organised an, an initial assessment. And that's about a four-hour process where they get your story and they test everything. And I was... very interesting thing happened in the assessment because I was failing, in my mind, failing absolutely everything that they asked me to do you know, standing on one foot, you know, and falling over and so, you know, all sorts of things I just couldn't do. And, and then they asked me to put my two arms out and hold them up for as long as I could. And I just cracked a wry smile because I've got a, a black sense of humour. I said, here we go. So out my arms went and I just held them up. And the OT that was testing me got his stopwatch out and then he started shuffling his feet and thinking, oh, you know, after 10 minutes, he said, Trev, you've broken every record. You can, you meant to keep your arms up there for, for as long as you, you can until you drop. And I can see you're nowhere near dropping. So um, let's call it quits. And um, the reason for that, it sort of put a little hook in my mind as, that was really important and significant because here it was something I could do now. How is it that a bloke that could not move, could hold his arms up forever. Well, the simple reason is my context. I played the flute and I've been playing it for 40 years and play the flute, you hold your arms up. And here I was using muscles in my arm and it sort of told me that maybe this thing of using your body is, there's something in this. So a week later, I got into the program and I went into the program with the mindset of 
I've given everything else a go. I'm going to give this a go, even though I think that it's rubbish. It's not going to work, but I'm going to give it a go. The program has a lot of movement, has a lot of education, but it's education when they talk about mindfulness, for example, they might talk about it for five minutes and then you do it for an hour. So right through the program, you're starting to change how you approach life, how you do things. And I started sleeping better. I started coming off my medication. I started to understand that, you know, one of the important things is that pain is not a good indicator of tissue damage. Now that, that was a fresh concept to me because here I was thinking that if I move, I'm going to wreck my back and because I'm getting all this pain, so I'm going to have to stay still. Um, and that protective self was, was really putting me into a place of chronic pain. So the education I received helped me to change how I approach life. And I started to switch from if you if you move you're going to hurt yourself and injure yourself to let's move let's give this movement a bit of a go and see what happens and i started to create a bit of safety around myself understand what was important what i could do safely and started to change it up and i went into the program unable to walk more than 200 meters and now, four years later, I can walk as much as I want to. Don't have pain. And the education that I received really helped me to uh, make changes to how I did life. And I started to enjoy my woodworking, doing things, re-engaging with friends, relationships, volunteering, all of that sort of stuff really became a different way of doing life and I discovered that by doing that I could also have a life and one with less pain. So that's a little bit of my story really the context of getting into pain science and how it worked for me. Yeah wow what, what, a, what a journey so you went from very much trying to find the source of your pain and, and went through the merry-go-round of the, the biomedical fixing curing where's the pill to to eliminate this pain and then you had a step back you took a step back and and realized that hey you had lost a lot in your life in the process of trying to fix and and get rid of the pain so you were willing then to try something different and you were inspired by a, a friend of yours from the pain clinic and you took action you took proactive steps into getting your life back that's an amazing journey. And it's, it's great that you had that shift from no hope whatsoever to you saw some hope ever since that arm test, endurance test. You realized that, hey, there was, you could take some control back. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was a slow shift at first and a gradual shift and, and an understanding that our mindset and our psychological health and well-being contributes to our experience of pain and the other thing that i learned was that pain in itself is not a bad thing it's a lifesaver um, because you know i'll go back to thinking about a friend of mine who had a accident on a construction site fell off a balcony 
broke his back in a wheelchair, had no feeling below where the brake was on his spinal cord, and he had to be really careful because if he'd cut cut his toe or his leg, for example, he'd bleed out and not know it because he had no feeling. And so pain in itself is not something to be terrified about. It's when it gets into a feral state, really, <laughs> where you add to tissue damage, you add a mindset where everything is danger, 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 and you're getting flare-ups to the point that you get into chronic pain, that that's where it becomes problematical because you're starting to experience pain all over and it's being activated through mechanisms that you don't really understand that are connected to not the medical side of things because the tissues are okay, they've healed, but we're starting to get into the social and the psychological aspects of our experience and how we do life. And that can have a, you know, the, the good news is that what gets us into chronic pain can get us out of it. So if we flip it upside down, we can use the fact that our pain systems are adaptable and can be trained. We can turn that from being trained to the normal normalness of chronic pain. We can flip that to calm down that overactive pain system to the point that the issues with the tissues may still be present because I've got some chronic conditions in my body. They don't go away. They're still there. But the danger associated with them it is gone. And I've lowered the temperature in one sense, uh, calmed down, added social and psychological aspects to recovery and well are i'm able to have a life and enjoy doing stuff i still have physical restrictions so i've got to get help when lifting stuff and you know i've got need to make changes to pace myself and and manage how i do things uh, but i don't have to have that chronic pain in my face all the time it's mm. great and one of the things that i really loved about your experience was the learning the education was very much experiential you applied and practiced a lot of the concepts in in the pain clinic so you had a first-hand understanding rather than just someone telling you what to do or or just going through it didactically with a whiteboard or a few you know passive education methods so one of the the things that we as clinicians can often encounter is having that message portrayed in a way that doesn't make it sound like the pain is all in someone's head. So what would be your advice, Trevor, in those situations to prevent that message being interpreted that way? I, th I think, Daniel, it's, it's worth just taking a, a step back to have a look at the landscape that the person, your patient is living with before even getting into the question of how do I communicate change from a, a mindset where you're at where i can see that mindset to where i think it needs to go how about i really understand your story and your context so that you feel a connection with me and i can start to introduce new concepts 
without that flaring up of uh, resistance. And the first thing for my thinking is that the harder and, and the tougher and the more resistive a person is to different ideas and concepts, the more we need to respect where that, that what put that person into that place and, and understand it. So there's a bit of psychological care that needs to take place, a bit of patience as well. And, and that's the, the trick with clinical practice is that you don't necessarily get that time. So you've got to take, you, there's a need to take it slowly. There's also a need to contrast the person's experience and thinking because they're stuck and it's almost like spent their wheels are spinning and going nowhere. So they're stuck and you can see it. So how do I get them to change a little bit? And it's a really tough question, but I think understanding context is really important because what, um, what they're living with is real. And their thought processes, you know, by listening to how they explain their situation and perhaps by asking questions that tell you what their thought processes are rather than assuming that you, you've seen all this before. And I, I just have a bit of a giggle moment, really, because a friend of mine was a paediatrician in training at the Royal Children's Hospital. And in walked this kid one day, he's about five or six, she said, she told me the story and he was hobbling quite badly. And uh, this got the attention of the emergency staff and they started to assess everything that was going on. They ordered blood tests, they ordered uh, x-rays, different scans, different tests, a whole raft of everything they could throw at this kid. They threw at him to try to understand why he was hobbling. And... In the end, every test came up negative. So they called the head paediatrician down from the top floor and Danny came and he looked at the results and he looked at the kid and he asked the question. And the question was, why are you hobbling? And the answer, because grandpa does. Wow, how's that for context? So you know, really understanding where a person's coming from is a very, very good, good start. And it might give you some clues as to how do we start to introduce new concepts. My suggestion is to do it slowly, is to pick the important key issues first and maybe ask questions rather than tell someone. So to tell someone that they're stressed, when you know it, know they're stressed, might not be helpful because they could be in denial over it. So maybe ask them a question, how, how are you finding things at home? And it, it, you know, it's a very bland question, for example, but it might just start them talking about what's going on at home. So I would suggest, you know, start doing that. And then maybe sharing some stories because there's some fantastic stories out there that highlight the fact that people can have a really severe pain experience and have no tissue damage. So you don't have to tell someone it's all in their head, you know, and, and the key story that, that I use is the one that Laura Mosley uses uh, uh, quite a lot. She talks about the nail in the boot example that was documented in the British Journal of, of Medicine. 
where this construction worker jumped off a ladder, put a six inch nail through his safety boot, and was in a world of pain and dosed up with fentanyl and another anesthetic. And I ended up taking the nail out of the boot in an emergency and discovering that the nail had missed everything that went between a couple of toes. But he had a, a really severe pain experience, breathtakingly severe. Uh, when there was no tissue damage. So it was in his head in the sense that he he had his own context, which was he had a family and kids and a mortgage and he was worried that he was, he killed off his job and his life was about to end and wacko, we get this pain. So maybe starting to introduce different stories to highlight the fact that we can have pain without significant tissue damage when there's a context and getting people to, to be a bit curious about their situation or maybe even curious about other people's situations. So you might tell a story and ask, ask them to say, well, what are your thoughts about this? And that will tell you what they've taken on, what they understand and maybe help target a bit of education that might shift them slowly. Does that, sort of ring true? Definitely. It's finding out where they're coming from and their understanding of their pain because that's an, a question that's often missed in a lot of the medical contexts these days. So finding out what they think and then tailoring the, the message to them and rather than giving them all the, the facts at once, finding out the key messages so maybe it's a graded way to do that. And one of the best ways is, yes, through experiences and, and stories and sparking that element of curiosity so that they take an active approach to finding out more. Wanted to move on to the, so finding out for those who aren't ready to, to go into more of the, some call it the acceptance or away from the fixer, the chasing the cure mindset and those that perhaps think that they need a third or a fourth opinion and, and need a better diagnosis or they're missing something for those people who aren't perhaps ready or willing to approach pain with an active mindset and active approach to their pain what are some strategies that we could use as, as clinicians and as as educators to nudge them towards more of that active approach to their pain that's a great question. And I'm thinking about what are clinicians doing to model dim sim therapy and dim sims therapy. Really? It's something that David Butler wrote about danger in me, safety in me. So it's the balance between danger and safety. And the more danger we have going on, the more intense our pains are going to be, the more safety we balance it up. So I think that patients learn by what they see and experience as well as what they're told. So education will help them a little bit. Active education by doing is even better. But also they, they pick up on what's going on around them. So the question I would throw to clinicians is what, what thought have you put into creating safety in your practice? So from the moment a new patient walks through, you'll 
front door, what is their experience of your practice? Is it a bit stressed because people are running around, you know, catching up with the fact that they're running behind time and all of that? Or is it a calm place? Is it a place where people are welcome and accepted and they're free to talk about who they are? Uh, or like, is it people clinically standing off from, from being vulnerable and being willing to participate and share their vulnerabilities? And are they modeling safety? And perhaps I could be as radical as saying, well, we know that movement's a really good thing. We know that being calm and being social is a good thing. So how about even for staff saying to them, we're going to take a lunch break between 12 and 1, and we're not going to go next door to the cafe that's next door, but we're going to walk half a K to another cafe, and we're going to try different cafes, and we'll walk, walk there and walk back. We'll sit and have a coffee and a lunch and a bit of a laugh. Uh, we might walk through the park on the way back. Oh, and how about being radical and we might invite one or two clients along and get them moving and active and engaging socially and seeing how we interact with each other and the fun that we might have. Is there fun and enjoyment in the practice? So what's the temperature of, of the practice when you walk in? How does it feel? And I, I had a really good experience that's a bit of a giggle for me because I, six years after uh, the divorce, I, I got remarried and I met a wonderful woman and we're coming up to our first year anniversary and Kay, Kay's a chef and a, a fabulous lady and, and we get on like house on fire and enjoying life together. But we did the catering for the wedding and with, with a bit of help from friends and family and about three or four weeks out from the wedding, my right leg started to play up to the point that it was in a lot of pain and I was unable to drive my car because I couldn't use the brake pedal. Um, it just wasn't functioning. So it was a bit of a problem. So I rang a friend and she said to me, Trevor, do you think you might be having a bit of stress going on at the moment? And it just sort of dawned on me that, you know, we've been right, working pretty hard at this, getting the wedding organised, and there was a bit of stress going on. And just the, the realisation of it calmed it down, but also went off to see a physio, a, a local physio in Cobram. And I walked in the door, and the receptionist said, welcome to me, by saying, hello, Trevor. Now, I hadn't even introduced myself, um, but she knew that I was walking in for that appointment. She sat me down. We did the initial standard intake form, name, address, Medicare number, whatever. Filled, as I was filling that out, she said to me, would you like a cup of tea or coffee? And they had lots of different varieties of teas and coffees. I had some fresh fruit on the reception desk for please take. And I'm, she was very genuinely welcoming and warm in her engagement with me. And then I'm, si I'm sitting down, I'm looking across at the reception desk and right in front of me is a board that she'd made up, a pegboard with all of the different social groups in Cobram, from walking groups to 
morning teas to card groups, different physical activities as well as social activities. So immediately there's this overlay of the social and the psychological is important for this practice and how we treat each other in our practice and how that flows through to our patients is how we do life and patients pick this up and it will contrast with those people that have a really set mindset it will hit them right right there oh this is a bit different and it might get them thinking about just how other people do things so i think that's a you know modeling is a very important thing to help shift people yeah, interesting. So it's that sense of warmth within our context in the clinic, how do we facilitate that safety and that community vibe so that people feel very welcome and there's hospitality in there. It's not as perhaps cold as their previous experiences. And then they can feel more open to new suggestions and, and able to open up and develop that trust and rapport with, with the clinicians. Because, yeah, I think you're right. We forget that it's very much a human interaction and maybe we can treat patients and clients just like we would treat a friend. Yep. Yep. And just tone down that, you know, that clinical practice in a sense that can be standoffish. I, you know, there's a place for it, but there's also, if 90% of what we do is about relationship, then how we do relationships really important and the other 10% will take care of itself. So, you know, focus on that. That I think is a really good thing. Mm. Such a great point. I wanted to talk about one of the topics that's been on our radar in our, in our discussion group on Facebook, which is high value healthcare. And we were talking about previously some red flags, for because we know about red flags as clinicians to look out for with patients where they require further referral or, or scans, further investigation. For the consumers, for the, the clients, what are some red flags that they can look for when it comes to working with clinicians? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting way of thinking. And those red flags are about, I'm wondering, is it possible for me as a, a consumer or a patient or a client to ask myself a few questions to point me in a better direction, to sort of avoid the minefield out there? You know, you ring up a physio, you've got no idea what their experience is with pain. Are they specialists? Do they understand psychological and social aspects? Uh, are they able to communicate that and help me with that? And so I started to do a bit of thinking about this and I developed a, a few questions and thoughts that, that might be, that might help steer me in a better direction. And I guess one of the questions would be, can the clinician clearly explain the purpose of pain? So I might go to them and I might say, well, I'm in pain. What does this mean? Can you tell me about it? 
And if they can clearly explain the purpose of pain and they don't go straight to, oh, I've got to do this full assessment. If once they, and I'm only talking about people with persistent or chronic stuff here because clearly in an acute situation, you've got to stop and make sure that there's not, that the tissues are in a, in a state that you're not going to do more damage to them and that you're helping them to heal and mend. But if it's, we're talking about persistent and chronic pain, can the clinician that's talking to me clearly explain the purpose of pain in a way that I can understand it? That would be something. And can I explain the difference between acute and persistent pain? And quickly take that conversation from the medical to the psychological and social by talking about how persistent pain is influenced by what's going on around us in our context and all of that. Did I ask me questions to help their understanding of what's going on for me? And, or do they present information in a way that they purport to be the expert? To me, that would be a red flag because none of us understands another person's context until we take the time to, to start listening and understanding. So if you present yourself as an expert, then you'll, what will happen is that you'll go straight to the kid that's hobbling into emergency <laughs> and do $5,000 worth of tests without understanding that it has nothing to do with the medical. Fascinating. And so another red flag or a question I would ask myself is, what happens when they first engage with me? What do they do to create safety and a sense of welcome? If that wasn't happening, then that would be a red flag. If I'm not feeling safe and welcome, um, then that would be a red flag. And when I'm having my initial assessment, what are they most interested in? Do they want to know the medical side of my history? Or is it my story on, in the context that they're really interested in? And does it include questions, their initial assessment that help them understand that story? Or are they purely focused on the medical side of the questions and the assessment? That would be a red flag if we're talking about persistent pain. Another one would be, how well do, do they cope with me asking questions? Are questions welcome or are they brushed over, ignored, or I know better than you, I'm the expert? And how well do they cope when I challenge what's going on? So if I need, need to really understand at a deeper level and I start challenging and asking for more information, how do I cope with that? Do they become defensive or do they welcome the opportunity to explain their approach and how that might assist in my recovery. And I think that's an important point because some, there's some thought that what does the clinician offer and what, what does the patient want from the clinician? Well, for me, I want their experience and a different approach because obviously the one that I've been doing for the last 20 years didn't work. So I needed that to be contrasted, but I needed it to be contrasted through the lens of somebody understanding me. Um, so having expertise is welcome, 
but how that's worked out is really important. Does it throw up questions of, oh, it's all in your head, or does it help me feel safe that I can journey with this person and start to step through what I need to step through to start getting well? And another question I want how well are they aware of the importance of creating a safe place? What do they do? And what tells me that they're creating safety? It's not just the physical stuff, but it's the emotional safety. And how do I feel when, when I first walk through the doors? And what happens in the initial assessment to reinforce safety? For example, are you, you, you're being informed about the purpose of each part of the assessment and given, op given an opportunity to give consent or ask questions if you don't understand or feel uncomfortable? And are you done too? Or are you part of the assessment? So I want to see every stage of an activity clearly explained and for me to be given a chance and an opportunity to ask questions. And is what is happening rushed, rushed through in just a form ticking exercise, tick, 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 without any information being provided? Because there's a bit of dignity and respect in the relationship building that that's very important around creating safety and if that dignity and respect is not there then that's a red flag for me now does the service you're seeing lay out a plan at the start and it maps out what what is the, the care that are they working this plan out with me and something that we're able to agree to or again is it just something that's handed out Another red flag is really around after the initial assessment, am I confident that the service has a thorough understanding of the stresses in my life? And what has been their response to this? Did that response leave me feeling safe and confident that they could handle my emotional vulnerabilities and integrate that into the care that's been provided? Or did it leave me feeling that they were unable to grasp the importance of the challenges I face each day? And for me, I don't see it as a problem if I have lots of stresses that are difficult and complex to handle. And let's face it, if someone's in chronic pain and locked into that, they will have lots of things going on. It's, you know, that's a given. And for me, it's okay that you as, say, a physiotherapist, don't have the complete skill set to, to handle that care or that part of it. But there is someone on the team that you can lean into that I can go and see and start to unpack those challenges and find better ways of handling them. So uh, is that part of the service? If it's not, then that's a red flag. That's great. There's so much of that, very much it's collaborative I'm hearing it's not so much we're doing something to the client, we're working with the client and, and being comfortable in uncertainty, not being the expert authority operator and more of the interactor guide coach. And how can we handle the deeper topics that come in with 
psychosocial elements with emotional elements and how do we respond to to stress and and how do we then help and make that safety so that people can feel that they can express themselves and and dive into more of the deeper story and the deeper side of the experience rather than just focusing on the surface yeah and clearly in the persistent pain space if a clinician is going straight to the medical and saying i want want copies of your medical files i want copies of all of your results and is just looking at wanting to understand the x-rays order more pathology all of that would be red flag red flag red flag because frankly i've had so many x-rays and ct scans and mri scans i don't need any <laughs> any more pathology done to me so the pain i need someone that can manage that hear the story and help me through it and help help provide stuff to retrain that overactive pain, pain system that's going on because it is retrainable and and does the clinician understand what can be done to help uh, nerves work better and all of that so so great to hear the insights from from the patient's experience and seeing how we can incorporate dims and sims not only in our treatments but also in our context in our clinical space trevor that's been an awesome discussion on some of the the key concepts in number one your experience and how you've had your journey from hopeless to hopeful and you're a living breathing example that someone can take some control and live a life that they want with some pain and and you're a great advocate for not only the consumer but also for us clinicians to learn more about how we can communicate to people and have those human interactions rather than focusing just on the issues in the tissues as they say so trevor thank you so much and for those who are looking to find out more about you and your work and contact you where can they where can they find you well um there's a lot of information out there um so pain revolution is is one place you can find me and uh, my story is on that website and um, i'm involved in, in discussions on lots of different forums so i'm quite happy for anyone to private message me and or if if they can't find me to contact you and you can pass on my details and i just love having these conversations and i really value the work that clinicians are doing that that those clinicians that are curious and wanting to learn more and to adapt uh, what they do to make better meet the needs of their patients is it's where it's at and it's great that people are starting to involve consumers in having their voice and and use our experience to create positive change great trevor well said so really appreciate your time and and appreciate your engagement as well in our discussion group so until the next time